Uh, Tomorrow we'll be talking about the founding of the church and the giving of the Holy Spirit. We here today are recipients of that same gift, and we are the descendants of an unbroken chain of that same church. So today I'd like to talk about the church and the Holy Spirit. Why did God call you to this church? Why did he give you the gift of the Holy Spirit? What does scripture say about our calling? Why did God call us? Are we doing a good job? Is the church doing a good job? We'll start today by reviewing how a church should measure its success. How we as members of the Church of a Worldwide Association can measure our success in the work that God has called us to do. So we'll look at that in scripture. But before we do that, I went to Google and its new little artificial intelligence boosted search engine. And I asked Google, what makes a successful church? I don't know if you've used ChatGPT or things like that, but it came back with some really great stuff very quickly. Here's seven criteria from Google of a successful church. Salvations. How many have come to Christ in our church? Salvations, plural. Baptisms. How many have been baptized? Faith sharing. Are you sharing our faith? Is your church sharing its faith? Community transformation. Wherever you are with your church in that community, are you transforming it? Kingdom ministry. Pointing everyone to the kingdom. Church planting. A little water grows. Church here, church there, church here. And finally, movement planting. I suppose that's around some criteria of Christianity. Get a movement going. I then asked Google, what are the most successful churches in the United States? And it told me Life Church in Edmond, Oklahoma was number one. 85,000 weekly attendees. Church of Highlands in Birmingham, Alabama with 60,000 attendees is number two. And number three, just south of us at Lakewood Church, you know him, Joel Osteen, 45,000 attendees every week. And they have church down to a science. And I mean science. From the Christian Journal, Daily Journal, um, November 12th, just a few months ago, a quote. It's no secret that denominational officials research a target community's growth potential before starting a new church. They examine the demographics. They create a plan, similar to any business plan, and they prepare a launch. They take advantage of social and print media, and they promote the new church through multiple marketing outlets. Then they work the numbers. Was Launch Sunday a success? Measure it. How many people attended? What was the median age of the attendees? Was the music mix right for that age demographic? How many possible giving units were at church? We certainly need to measure that. When I was on the financial services side at Bank of America, we used to say, how many buying units are here at this party tonight? No, you're at church. How many giving units are there? How has growth proceeded in the weeks and months since the launch of our church? Such questions become the benchmarks that measure success of a church in the world and the community around us. Responding to a question from a person writing that his pastor said that he intended to increase the size of his congregation by 10,000 people in five years, author Mike Adams wrote in Town Hall Online, it's a church forum, 
in an article entitled, My Pastor Can Beat Up Your Pastor. My answer will be direct, Mike Adams says. In my view, you should not bother voicing your concerns to your pastor. He wants to grow to 10,000. You should leave your church immediately. That may sound extreme, so please allow me to explain. Whenever pastors get together in groups, they make small talk just like anyone else. It isn't long before one pastor asks another the size of his congregation. If a pastor has a large church, he tries to conceal his pride and reveals the large size of the congregation. If a pastor has a small church, he's almost apologetic when he reveals its very small number. This interaction is similar to children playing on the playground, asserting that one dad's, kid's dad is bigger than another and can beat them up. Of course, the pastor who has the biggest congregation eventually starts to think that it's a reflection of his greatness as opposed to the work of the Holy Spirit. He begins to take pride in his church growth and would consider it a failure on his behalf if the church didn't continue to grow. Once his ego becomes wrapped up in the size of a church, the numbers will never be satisfying to him. He doesn't realize this unless someone brings it to his attention, but no one ever does. So he starts setting numerical growth goals and target dates, and that's where the disaster begins. Mr. Adams goes on to list some of the things that people do to increase attendance at church, like becoming politically correct, or avoiding controversial subjects so as not to offend anyone. The minister wants to write a book about his success and market his ideas about being happy and successful, and even wealthy if you follow his advice. It'll start to bear little resemblance to the words in this big book. Expanding real estate becomes important as an inducement to draw more people so you can have more activities and feel good about the nice building that you go to. And a coffee bar is important. Casual clothing is welcome. Lots of programs, good printed collateral, short, short, pithy messages, very short, 20 minutes. All the things we see at churches today. That's how some measure success. That's how some act. That's how some churches conduct themselves in order to be successful. Now we may think that the Church of God would never do this, but have you ever thought or heard some of those same things? What can we do to increase our attendance? Why do we speak so long? How can we get more people to attend services? How can we get more people to want to donate to our work? Normal questions, you've heard them. I've probably said some of those things. Maybe you have too. Or have you ever heard anyone say, you know, we do have the largest congregation in this part of the world. At the feast, I've heard that. We have more people listening to our church services on Cogwa TV than others. I went and looked at the numbers, right? And we're adding more members than any other group of the splinters of Worldwide Church of God. We've had more baptisms than A, B, or C. Measure, measure, measure. If you use these kind of stats and criteria, then clearly Rick Warren and Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar are great successes. While the record clearly shows that Noah and Jeremiah and Jesus Christ were abject failures. Turn with me to start today to John 6:44. You know it. <laughs> it's a good memory scripture. John 6, verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You know that scripture, of course. 
How many times have you heard it before at church? But what does this verse tell us about God's calling and church attendance? And some measures of what people call success for the church. It tells us that only God himself can bring someone to the truth. If you try yourself, you can get the most charismatic preacher on the earth. You can get the best business plan. You can have really snazzy marketing collateral. You can have a really cool coffee bar. You can have a 100-person choir. You can have a rock band, multimedia presentations, a really cool international outreach effort. And you can even have testimonials sometimes by famous people. But no one of those people in attendance would have been drawn by God to the true faith. They are there for the coffee, they are there for the helpful message, and they're there for the big show. But God did not call them there. He works in his own way. Perhaps you have some of your own stories. The only one I know is the one my family experienced of how God actually really works. Christmas Eve, 1955, Old Tapan, New Jersey, across from New York City. A woman was in her bedroom crying. Life had to offer more than this. Her kids were bratty and they were arguing downstairs. Her husband was in debt and super grumpy as always. Her church on the corner could not answer her Bible questions, and so she switched on the radio and she heard a voice say, did you know that Christmas is a pagan holiday, not from God? What? Astonishing, life-altering. Her life was never the same after that, nor her three children, nor her grandchildren, nor her great-grandchildren. Multiple generations of my family were impacted by Edna Demarest listening to that little tiny snippet on the radio 70 years ago. Maybe you have your own story. Turn with me to Matthew 7. Churches being successful are lots and lots of people. Everyone's marketing. They're on every corner around our neighborhood. Very nice buildings. Matthew 7, verse 14. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. In all the history of man's existence since the Garden of Eden, God has only drawn a very few people to the truth. He has left the majority of the world in darkness to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he has shut off access to the tree of life. Only those whom God specifically draws to the faith are allowed to have access to the tree of life, and that is a very, very small number. Matthew 13. Turn to Matthew 13 and verse 10. Matthew 13, verse 10. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why do you speak unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Given by whom? Who is giving knowledge of these mysteries? It's God and it's only God. This is another way of telling us that God himself called you and he alone opened your mind to see the truth, to have a calling, to know what you previously did not know. Could he have done it in some other way? 
No, only he could do it. Could you have done it on your own? Just open your Bible. They used to have Bibles at hotel rooms. Did you just be on a business trip, open the Bible, come to all this on your own? What does Scripture say about that? Turn to Romans 8, verse 7. Can you just discover these things by yourself? We read English, Spanish, Italian, French, Mandarin, whatever version the Bible's in. Just read it yourself. Can't you read it? Romans 8, verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Maybe these verses answer a lot of questions that many of you many years ago perhaps had. Why couldn't I see these things before? I went to church, I studied my Bible, but it never really sank in. It all seems so clear now. Why can't I explain the truth to my family and friends? It's so obvious, it makes so much sense, but they just don't seem to be getting it. And I'm falling for this wonderful gal or this guy. But he, she, seems to have such a hard time accepting my beliefs. Why can't I find some way to make him or her understand? I'm not doing a good job converting them even though they love me. Anybody ever had any of those thoughts in years gone by? Know of anybody? In Romans 8 verse 7, Paul's telling us that the carnal mind, the natural mind, the normal mind, even a mind with an IQ of 160, even one with a great education, even one with filled with strong moral precepts, even one that is kind and friendly and open-minded, even these minds, these people, and quite frankly, all people, cannot understand the things of God unless he opens their mind to see it. It's impossible, it can't happen, it will not sink in because God has not activated their mind to understand spiritual truths. A spirit must be added to the human mind by God or else the person will not understand. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. We'll read for a couple scriptures. One of my favorites. But as it is written, I have not seen or ear heard, nor hath entered into the hearts of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Did you notice that everyone can understand certain things? The things of a man, things pertaining to the physical world. Take, for example, gravity. Take someone to the top of a tall building. Take them to the edge of a cliff and give them a little, and they'll immediately recoil. Don't push me, bro. Like my friend George Townsend did to me at the feast one year. <laughs> it's like, don't push me. Why? You can't see gravity. Do you believe in it? What are you, some nut? You can't see it. Yes, you do. You believe it because it's a thing of this physical world. 
But the same universal awareness, the same knowledge, the same belief does not exist for spiritual things. Unless God gives someone the Holy Spirit, the human mind cannot understand spiritual things, which is one of the huge things that is the spiritual man cannot understand. What is one of the huge things? I just talked about gravity. That's a huge physical thing. What's a huge spiritual thing that people just cannot understand? Look at Romans 7, verse 14. It tells you. This will explain a lot of what's happened the last 30 years. For we know that the law is spiritual. Woo! Deep. You cannot explain and have understanding of the spiritual law, the spiritual things of God, if you have a natural mind. It just doesn't work that way. God must personally intervene and open up the mind of a natural person with his spirit to understand the law. Only God makes the decision now and throughout all of recorded history about whom he will call and whom he will allow to remain in their natural state. Your friends at work or school. Yes, he may use his servants, his ministers at various times and places to be instruments in revealing his truth to others, but it isn't the servant that is given the understanding, it is God. So if a church of God congregation has a thousand people attending, the pastor may be a great guy, but it's not the pastor's greatness that brought 1,000 people together there in truth. It is God's mercy and wisdom. Now, what about this idea that if we just do a better job, there'll be more people attending church? There's nothing wrong with that, of course. One of the commissions of the church is to preach the gospel, and we have a number of diligent servants doing that, right? There's nothing wrong with becoming more skilled in the Word of God, developing better, more engaging personalities. But be careful if we begin thinking that those things of and by themselves will increase our attendance or allow our church to be successful. God has a purpose and a plan for each person who has ever lived. But the great majority of life on this earth has lived and died without God's calling. And God is the one who did that. Almost nobody mathematically in the history of the world has been called. Why? And why you? Let's go to another parable and answer this spiritual question. Matthew 20. Please turn to Matthew 20 and we'll read a few scriptures. They always told us don't read tell scriptures in a row, but I'm gonna do it. <laughs> the parable of the vineyards, the workers in the vineyard. You probably know this famous parable. Verse 20. <clears throat> I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Okay? I'm seeing what that's like out in Israel, maybe Napa Valley. Now, when he agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And he went about the third hour and saw others that were standing idle, you know, just standing around. He said to them, you can also go to the vineyard, and whatever's right, I'll give you. So they went. And again, he went out the sixth hour, and then he went out the ninth hour. And he did likewise. And at about the 11th hour, he went out and found some others that were still standing around. 
Why have you been standing here idle all day? I don't know, you didn't ask me to do anything. Here we go, let's go. They said to him, because no one hired us, he said to them, you can also go to the vineyard, and whatever is right, whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to a steward, call everybody in, give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when they came, and when those came, who were hired about the 11th hour, they received a denarius. Oh, thank you. One hour of work, one denarius. I love it. See you again tomorrow. But when the first came, 12 hours of work, <laughs> they supposed that they would receive more, <laughs> more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landlord, saying, these, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us. We've borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give you this last man the same as to you. It is not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. What a story. <laughs> all the folks needed work. They're all hired on the same terms of payment, which they happily accepted. Some worked 12 hours, some nine, some six, some three, and some lucky ones, one. Yet they all received the same pay for their labor. What is this story really about? Is it about a vineyard and working for a few hours? In a dusty farm far, far from here? It's one of the most applicable parables in the Bible to we Christians today in this modern era of the church. Some of you who are called in the 50s and the 60s. Others in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s or more recently some brought into Worldwide Church of God. Others never even heard of Worldwide Church of God, never even saw it. Some went to Ambassador College, GT3, Booth City. What are you talking about? Never even heard of it. YOU or SCP or Cogway Youth Camps. The Plain Truth or Discern. Called decades ago where you're baptized like some here in 2023. The parable is for us like none other. We are the vineyard workers. The employer is God. And the denarius represents the Holy Spirit and its claim on eternal life. And it shows us that God calls us to eternal life at varying times and under varying conditions. What is the major difference between the workers who were fired first and the workers who were hired last if the reward is eternal life? One group worked for 12 hours and the other worked for one hour. An infinitesimal nothing of time compared to life without end. So how can we relate this to God's calling of the last 6,000 years of mankind's history? This parable helps answer the questions some may have asked about the difference of being called now or in the 50s or the 60s, right? 
versus those people that are going to be so lucky to be called in the millennium or even the great white throne judgment. Wouldn't it just be easier to be called in the millennium in the great white throne judgment? There's no debate that there's a God. Humanity's every way has been proved wrong. There's plenty of spirit beings in the millennium to help you conduct the true way. Right? Isn't that what we think? Isn't that what it says? Humanity's every way has been proved wrong. Right? There'll be no devil to tempt anyone. There'll be no deception at all. There will be one church denomination and every congregation will probably be within walking distance or a short car ride or whatever we're doing. The glorified children of God will be teachers instructors. Hunger and poverty and disease and political factions will be gone. Sounds good to me. Count me in, they'll say in the millennium. I'm ready to get baptized. Let's do it. So easy, so clear. Those of us in 2023, after one year <laughs> or 60 years plus of living this world, but not being of this world, may think we got a bad deal. And we might complain about how hard it was for us. We had to work for 12 hours, and these people in the Great White Throne Judgment only worked for one hour. That might not seem fair. But wait, <laughs> maybe the servants of God in the first century, who will be there, will want to voice their complaints about how easy members had it in the 60s, 70s, and 2023s in comparison to living under the crushing force and the violence of the Roman Empire, with many Christians in that time being put to death. But then, the faithful prophets of God from the 6th and 7th century might come to object to the 1st century Christians who had it so much easier than they did. They might say, you think Rome was tough? Try living under the Persian rule, Nebuchadnezzar, or Egyptian bondage before that. But wait. Then the righteous before the Noatian flood would rise up and criticize the prophets and point out that they had to walk with God in a carnal world that was violent and hostile for 300, 600, 700, 800 years or more. While well, all you Latter-day Saints had to do was endure a little bit of hassle for a few decades? Come on, man. Come on. In any age, pre-flood, patriarchal, prophetical, apostolic and time, millennium, great white throne judgment. It is God who draws us to the truth. If we serve him faithfully under whatever conditions we experience and for however long it may be, he will give us all the same proverbial denarius, everlasting life. God wants to save the entire world. He has a plan and only he knows it and he will do it. Since he's only calling a few now, and has only called a few in all the generations of the last 6,000 years, it tells us that this is not the time for most people. God, for the first 6,000 years of mankind, has only called people for the purpose of doing his work at certain times. When he selected people to do his work, he chose from his wisdom, from among the people that were on earth at that time, to help it. And almost nobody else 
But this isn't shocking. This isn't new. This was described in the first book of the Bible. Turn to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. We're told this truth in the third chapter of Genesis. Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand to take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden and a flaming sword which turned everyone away to guard the way to the tree of life. God had angels guard the tree of life so that no one could take of that tree. The tree of life represents the Holy Spirit and the conversion of the human mind. The only way to receive the Holy Spirit, symbolized by this tree, is to be invited by God. And only after being invited by God will that that sword be sheathed and the called person be allowed to eat of its fruit. Only God can allow someone to take of this protected fruit. It's always been like that since the first book of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, since the beginning. A person cannot know spiritual things related to eternal salvation, the way of how to worship and grow and live in order to receive the gift of everlasting life unless God opens our minds by his specific intervention in our lives. When the truth of God begins to click in your mind, God the Father was the one giving us spiritual insight. He touched your life in a very real and tangible and measurable way. You of all people on the earth, there are 37 million people walking around Tokyo right now. He chose you to represent him on this earth at this time and to do his work. To do so, he called you out of every nation of this world, including its institutions, its religions, its philosophies, its politics, its military systems, and its cultures. He tells us to put down the drums we are beating for whatever political leader we think can save us and start trusting the only one that can. He is training us to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ in the future government of God. As such, we must learn to do things his way. We must speak as he speaks, and we must try to think about everything as he thinks. This is a rare and great privilege. It's given, it's not deserved. The Bible makes that clear. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, let's see a description of ourselves Let's look in the mirror. (laughs) First Corinthians 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And as God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base, base things of the world and the things which are despised. Has God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are? If you look at what those words mean, it makes it even more clear. The words that are used in the scripture. Foolish, the word is morose, M-O-R-O-S. Dull, 
absurd, heedless, stupid. <laughs> Weak, asthenase, feeble, impotent, without power or strength. Base, agenase, without kin, low rank, dishonorable, exuntiajo, contemptible and despised. Why would God call people like this? Dull, feeble, dishonorable, contemptible. Or should I say, why would God call people like us? Look at verse 28 again. This is why. And base things of the world and things which are despised, God has cho God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's why, because it's about God. You were called to the faith to help God change this world, to replace the institutions and religions and cultures of this earth, to end everything that is, and to help set up a new kingdom that will never end, God's kingdom. Why the first Christians on the first Pentecost? Why my grandmother in 1955? And why you, of all the people on the earth? The answer is because there is no way we will be able to say that our great church and our great coffee bar, and our great building, and our great marking effort, and our wondrous talent were why so many people came to the Lord in his way. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. But of, of, of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that it is written, this is the point of my whole message. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The whole world changing from the horror that it has been to the joy that it will be. The whole of history's humanity being brought back to life. All flesh converted to spirit. Rivers of living waters, a new Jerusalem, and one universe-wide kingdom of justice and peace and love forevermore. There can be only one author, and there can be only one finisher of that particular future, our most loving God. So Pentecost will be here in a few hours. Why were you called into this church, and why were you given the gift of the Holy Spirit? It's crystal clear, so that you may glorify God.